if I woke up tomorrow and I had to work uh, every day I, and, I, and I had much less than I have now, I would be at peace with that. I would, what I wouldn't be at peace with is not taking the opportunities that are in front of me because I do see a real opportunity to build things that are special and lasting and have a really positive impact on society. I really don't want to think back and regret not taking some risk um, because I was trying to protect you know, a basic foundation that I had. Folks, this is your man with the plan, Kenny Vaughn, director of Breakline Apex. I'm here once again with my partner in crime. What is up, everybody? I am Sophia. I am a talent recruiter here at Breakline. And this is just our favorite part of the week, getting to jump into the Breakline arena with you guys. And we are in line for just another amazing conversation. We had the pleasure of hosting our first business titan in the arena. So we sat down and had a chat with the CEO of Blend, Nima Gansari. And Kenny, will you tell our faithful listeners a little bit more about Nima, a little bit more about Blend? So if you haven't heard of Blend yet, I'm telling you, you should because they are making some major moves in the financial Mm -hmm. services industry. Um, Essentially, the way that I have come to learn Blend is they are streamlining the lending process. They're taking a lot of the pain points out of a lot of financial services that we've all gotten accustomed to using, things like um, a mortgage for a house, you know, things that can take two, three months. They are really trying to reduce some of those pain points. Um, And Nima really is the visionary that has led this charge for his team at Blend. Um, such a very cool background. Yeah. His parents immigrated to the to the states from Iran. Um, he started from very humble beginnings. Worked at I'm not going to steal his thunder, but you know, worked at Starbucks, McDonald's, Circuit City. Worked his way through college, and then out of all things, kilted an online poker. Like kilted, like this online poker shark. Um, which opened up some professional pathways, and here we are now, bossing it up at Blend. I'm just yes. such an inspiring story. So, what what did you take away from the story that just touched your heart? What things resonated with you from this conversation? I mean, the mission of Blend—they just saw an absolutely massive opportunity to really help sort of open the aperture in terms of you know home ownership, and obviously that is such a pivotal part of you know, generational wealth and creating a space where people from various backgrounds could could honestly get in on that game. So incredible, so important. And the most striking thing about him, Kenny, is this guy, he is so brave. He is so brave. He took so many risks and yes, they were calculated. This guy is very smart. He does his research, he does his homework. At the end of the day though, it it was risky taking the jumps that he did in his career, the entire trajectory with the poker. Oh my God, this son of a gun. I was just so impressed by by that point. You know, I love what you shared about that too because he, he him and his team are in the arena. They're in the trenches. Mm. They see this massive problem that has not been addressed in terms of accessibility. And I think what I love about Blend, too, is they are such a mission-driven organization, which you said, um, really trying to make this process more accessible for 
not just the folks who already have access to these services and are already able to, 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 to make it through these, you know, really these pain points, but for everybody, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of the background that you come from. One piece that I would be remiss if I did not mention is from, from the organizational standpoint, we at Breakline are so tremendously thankful to be partnered with Blend right now. Um, I think as the director of Apex, I personally am just grateful for this organization for, for stepping up, coming on board as a founding Apex sponsor. Yes, Blend. Sure that we are creating opportunities for our Breakliners and every single Breakliner that has had the opportunity to go to Blend is absolutely crushing it. You know what I think we should do, Kenny, is I think we should meet our friends in the arena. Should we dive right in? Let's dive right in. All right. Welcome, everybody. We absolutely love having our community here, and we're so excited to be able to welcome Nima, I also wanted to welcome the team at Blend. I think we have a lot of Blend, part of the Blend family with us today. And I wanted to share with the Breakline community, we have worked with this company for a couple of years now, and they just publicly announced a recent $300 million funding raise at a $3.3 billion valuation. This company is just on fire and you know headed straight to the moon. But when we started working with them, they were still pretty small. And what I thought was so remarkable was even at that stage, they were super interested in hiring outstanding top talent from underselected um, communities. And so it has been a remarkable partnership for years. I wanted to particularly call out Ulysses Smith, who heads up diversity, inclusion, and belonging at Blend. He's been an amazing thought partner and friend to me, along with um, Mark Greenberg, who runs finance there, and the entire talent acquisition team, who we absolutely love to work with on a regular basis. So it really does feel like two families meeting up again, Nima, and um, we're so delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. You bet, Nima. And as we were getting prepared for this conversation, I just kept thinking about how your background, your origin story, obviously the, it, it meant so much in terms of the empathy that you have for the problem that you and your team are solving at Blend. But your story is also really similar to a lot of the stories that we hear within our Breakline community. And I'd love for you to just share with us a little bit about your background, your family, where you grew up, you know, how you got your start. Sure, <clears throat> thanks Bethany. I, I was born in Iran and I, my parents moved here when I was very young, uh, moved to the Midwest and, you know, kind of grew up in a modest, maybe lower middle class uh, environment. My parents were both teachers and we, you know, actually had a, had a great life. We were kind of living, you know, sort of paycheck to paycheck in terms of rent. You know, we were renting for years and years. And then I think that the sort of pivotal moment for my parents' financial lives was in the late 90s when they finally had you know, saved up just enough money, a few thousand dollars to, uh, to be able to buy a home. And that home, uh, that mortgage was a $100,000 home, it was a $3,000 or $4,000 down payment. But that home then you know, 20 years later, um, a few years ago became the cornerstone for their retirement. And so, and that was a moment for us as a family to, to finally own something here in, here in America. Um, but I also, I guess a little bit more about me, I, I, 
I always liked building things. I always liked um, that. I loved the advent of the internet. I loved computers. And it sort of all of this kind of set the stage for us founding Blend, um, you know, 20 something years after that. Um, and I, I just put a link into the chat for folks who are here so that they can they can watch your parents be interviewed about that experience of moving to this country. Your mom actually spoke really movingly about having two young children and being afraid to open her door, you know, not speaking the language and um, and then, you know, their pride in in owning a home for the first time in their adopted country. So I encourage all of you to watch that video. It's only about five minutes long. Um, Nima, can you talk to us about Blend? Blend has evolved a lot. You started it with the, the idea of um, uh, making the mortgage process easier and the home buying process easier, but it's expanded quite a bit. And I'd love for you to talk about that evolution and where the company is today. Sure. When we started the company, we, we were really focused on a problem that we had seen uh, post the last financial crisis, which is that you know there were a lot of people who suffered as a result of losing their homes and getting foreclosed on or whatever it was, or financial loss because of that. Uh, in that last crisis. And part of the reason we felt was because the technology used to underwrite and eventually service those loans was the technology that was built 40, 50, 60 years ago. And there hadn't been modern software built for this industry in a long time for the mortgage industry. And then as we started to work with banks over the last eight, nine years, we realized that it wasn't just you know mortgage, which is obviously it's a centerpiece of a lot of people's financial lives. It's the largest asset most people will ever purchase. Um, but it was really every aspect of uh, of banking that needed a modern platform. And so, you know, every aspect of your financial life ranging from, you know, the first uh, first checking account you get when you open a, when you get a job as a kid to your first credit card when you're in college or your first student loan to get into college or your first car loan to buy a car to get to, to and from work, you know, to your mortgage, to your retirement, every aspect of that is still running on dated infrastructure. And so as we've learned about that in the last eight, nine years, we see it as we see it as a huge opportunity to to make financial services more accessible. There's lots of communities that aren't served by financial services because historically, you know, we needed branches on the corner, and that they put branches where people with a lot of money are. And and so it, it, it sort of, as that as the evolution of technology makes it easier for people to understand and get approved for financial services products like whether it's a checking account or a credit card or a, a personal loan or a car loan or a mortgage or whatever it is, that means that anybody uh, in the country can, can be on the same playing field. And so I think that's a hugely important thing that gets me excited where we can, we can focus our energy and making that as frictionless as possible and as transparent as possible. Uh, and, and over time, hopefully that means more people will be able to take advantage of a system that is really meant to help people uh, advance their financial uh, lives and advance their, their lives overall as a result. And, Nima, I think sometimes when we, we see CEOs of companies that are clearly very successful and becoming more so with every hour and every passing day, it can kind of feel like that happens to other people. <laughs> you know, that happens to somebody else. But your story is one of very modest beginnings and you worked your butt off to get where you are today. So you worked hourly jobs at McDonald's and Starbucks. And you know you were you were on financial aid at Stanford and um, working to kind of pay your own way. Um, and at some point along the way, you developed an interest in online poker. 
and you became one of the top online poker players in the entire world. And I believe that's how you ended up funding your Stanford education. Is that correct? And can you talk to us a little bit about that phase in your life and maybe some of the lessons that you learned from it that you still apply at Blend today? Yeah, it was definitely uh, an interesting time in my life. Uh, when I had, in high school, I was at, uh, I was working, I worked for a year at McDonald's. I worked for a year at now defunct Circuit City. Um, I worked for a year at Starbucks. And and that was just to be able to pay for things like, you know, gas and car insurance and, and make sure that I could get a car that was, you know, obviously not a nice car, but something to be able to get around. Um, and then in college, you know, Stanford is really generous in that they give full financial aid loans to, you know, people whose parents make under a certain amount of money a year, but then the room and board is not covered by that. And so I needed to get a job for room and board. And, and I was, I was uh, interviewing, there's a Starbucks right off of campus. I was interviewing there. And one of my friends from my freshman dorm, you know, this is 2004. It's like, you got to play online poker. If you just play enough hands, the, the casino, the online casino will give you what's called breakback, which is essentially um, you know, money to just play in the game. As long as you don't lose money, you can break even and, and make some, a few thousand dollars a month, which was more than uh, what was needed for me to pay for my room and board. And then, you know, it was one, it was something that I just, I guess, had a natural uh, affinity for and was, was pretty good at. And I studied it a lot. I practiced a lot. I would review every session that I did. Um, and, you know, I ended up becoming, you know, one of the best players in the world from 2004 to, to probably 2011 or so when I quit. Um, and I quit partially because the government, you know, had sort of taken a, a negative view on online gambling, which I think, you know, for good, there's a lot of bad things that happened to online gambling, but also partially because I had started at Palantir at the time and I was really enjoying the work that we were doing there. Um, but a lot of, a lot of good lessons from there. I mean, I, one of the things that I, the nice thing, one nice thing about online poker is that, you know, there's only one person, you can blame luck, and all that and, and there's of course luck in the short term but in the long term you know the cards eventually even out and so the only person that i can look at i could look at for when there are problems or when i was doing poorly was myself and so it forced me to be very introspective and and, and that meant not just not you know not being able to point fingers but that also meant i had to go back i would go back and review every single hand that i played after every session and that that was one thing that it taught me the other thing it taught me was you know sort of the power of collaboration where we the reason that one of the reasons I became so good at online poker was because I had, you know, very little um, ego about going and asking for help. So I would, I would, uh, there was an online forum called two plus two that's still around where people would go and post hands and then they would reply to hands. And it became this powerful collaborative community around people who are really just trying to help each other get better. And I took advantage of it more than almost anybody else. I would post hands that I played and I asked for advice on it. And I'd post my advice to other people's hands and get their reactions to it. And it became this sort of self-fulfilling thing where I just became better and better every day um, at what I did. And so those are a couple uh, examples, but there was, there was a lot of really great learnings. It also teaches you to deal with volatility. You know, you know, being at a startup, being in a tech company, it's an early stage company. You know, some days can feel like the worst day in the world and the next day can feel like the very best day in the world. Um, and that was the same with poker. And I, I have to stay even keeled throughout that. I can't overly celebrate what's the best day in the world? Cause it was just probably something lucky based on something I did years ago um, or, or the worst day in the world versus something unlucky that happened. It, it's like these things have, um, we have to take a very long-term view on these things for it to be a lasting phenomenon. And so those are a couple of the lessons, but um, it was definitely a, a fun ride. 
one of the things that, that you were just talking about is that you asked for a lot of help. You know, when you posted these hands, you were asking for your community to weigh in and help you get better. And asking for help can actually be really hard to do. It's like we're constantly encouraging our brake runners to ask for help. Um, and I grew up in a family where I remember my father saying all the time, um, we always offer help. We never ask for help. But as an entrepreneur, you also need a lot of help. You need help from investors. You need help finding employees. You need help, you know, with your idea. You need help, you know, with your team. How, like, how does that, how did that concept play out for you? I mean, you didn't come from a family that was very well connected into venture capitalists on Sand Hill Road, right? Like, how did you, how did you sort of like scaffold your way into this, um, place where you could get the help you needed to, to get this idea off the ground? Um, I mean, I think it, it was almost like I just thinking back to how I got here. One of the things that I did when I was at Palantir was I probably worked a lot harder than I was being compensated for in a way where I was so, it was so determined to prove myself um, that the people, even though I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a super high paying job. It wasn't like a, a top tech job in Silicon Valley at the time, but I just was really determined to prove myself. And it was more about proving myself to myself than it was about proving myself to other people. But then when other people saw that, and when I left Palantir eventually, they were quick to want to, to, to help me and work with me because I felt like I would return the favor of, of making the, 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 the basically free advice and free time they were giving me a worthwhile um, use of their time and advice. And so I do think that there's something there around commitment and grit that it's hard to exactly quantify what, what, I, what I did to earn it, but I was definitely, I mean, at Pound, I mean just you know, putting the pounds here into perspective, the fact that I was willing to do whatever it takes on a regular basis made people feel like they should bet on me. Um, actually one story, uh, when I, after I started Glenn, uh, somebody who was one of our clients at Palantir called me and, you know, it was like probably six months after we started the company, there's five of us in the company. And he said, um, you know, Nima, you know, you know, heard you started a company. Um, I want to be part of it. And this is a guy in finance, you know, not, not necessarily something you need in an early stage company. And I said, you know, Brian, I, I don't really think I have a job for you. Like we don't have anything for you to do here. And he goes, you know, this is something that has stuck with me and, and I've bet on him over the years as a result. So Nima, I'll come, you know, mop the floors if I have to, I just want to be part of it and I'll do whatever it takes to help you help us um, become a successful company. And so those, I mean, it's just a mindset thing. I think having a, a positive mindset, around impact, it just, it makes everybody want to help you and bet on you and get behind you and make you successful. And that's something that I, I think that was something that I had coming into Palantir and then going out of Palantir and starting Blend. And I, I look for that in other people as I've, um, as I've continued to grow as an individual. And do you think, I mean, one, one thing I say to our, our partners all the time is, um, the reason why we asked one particular question on our application, it's talk to us about a forging experience. That's when we hear, I was, I'm an immigrant or I'm a first generation American citizen. And I love to bet on folks like that because there's no, 
faking it. Like there is only one result and it has to be success. Um, and I'm really curious about that, that mindset and that experience. And you feel, to me, you, you personify that, um, you know, as you think about your, your parents and the risk that they took to come from Iran to the U S and kind of starting over your mom, you know, being afraid to open the door not speaking the language from that upbringing, do you think that that transmitted something special to you um, that enabled you to not just start blend, but really build it? One of the things that you talked about is how difficult it is, you know, how every day you're kind of ducking and weaving whatever challenge comes out your way when you're building a company for the first time. Is there something in your, your personal background that you think made you uniquely suited to, um, to rise to the occasion? Well, I think a couple of things. One, you know, my parents, uh, they did have to sacrifice a lot to come to this country. And, and at the same time, I, one thing that I think about a lot is what things am I uniquely capable of doing and what things, you know, you know, I, I have such so much fortunate, um, despite, you know, sort of them giving up a lot and being scared to be here, they put me in a really fortunate situation that I felt sort of responsibility to take advantage of. So, you know, one, they, they put, they, they always, you know, put a lot of, um, emphasis on, I wouldn't say school necessarily, but on, you know, be, you know, stu- you know ambition and studying and, and working hard and those things. Like my mom is one of the hardest working people I know. And so they put a lot on that and that gave me some good values and, and good, um, beliefs about what, how, how to become successful in the world. And, and then I, you know, I ended up naturally being very good at math and poker and those kinds of things, which later translated to problem solving and eventually things that would be useful in, in, in startup land. Um, and then I think, you know, America as a country, you know, we, there's a lot of things that are wrong with America, of course, but if my parents had gone to any other country in the world, I have almost no doubt that there was, there's zero chance that blend would, would exist. And so, you know, being in the situation in this country with those kinds of values, with those kinds of parents and those, the skills that I had, I did feel a responsibility to do this. And it is really hard. Every day is a fight. Um, you know, on the outside, I think startups look really, um, uh, they look really gratifying. But like, I can tell you, there's been three things that went wrong this morning. There were three things that went wrong last night. And every one of those things, you know, it, it, I feel it. You know, and it, it's something that as a, and even though we're 700 people, I still have to feel it because if not, nobody else is going to feel it as much as I do. And so, and so I think um, it is really hard, but that's the thing that I, you know, I, you know, I feel a responsibility, especially having seen a problem that we're uniquely capable of solving with technology, seeing the, the last financial crisis, seeing the opportunity for people to get better access to financial services. I think that is so um it's so important that somebody solve that. And I don't think anybody else is trying to solve it in the same way that we are. And so we're, I feel very, very uh, compelled to continue to work at it for a long time. I love that. And I want to take the conversation in that direction. And I was thinking about something that um, your, your teammate Ulysses Smith says all the time, which is if you think it's hard to build a product for an entire society versus a slice of that society, it's much harder and much more expensive to do it retroactively, you know, to fix it once it's been built. And instead, Blend really thinks a lot about accessibility, as you just mentioned. You you take the concept of diversity and inclusion and bring it all the way through your product. And I'd love for you to talk to us about, tell us more about how Blend is opening up homeownership as a possibility for more people 
um, and particularly for underrepresented consumers. Well, actually, one thing that I, I really appreciate about Ulysses is um, he said, he, you know, one of the things when I was first interviewing him, you know, he said, I, I talked to a lot of diversity and inclusion candidates at the time. And one thing he said that was unique was like, you know, he's like, I would view it as my job to make sure that we think about our impact, not just internally around diversity and inclusion, but how we help um, that diversity inclusion belonging in the world with our product. Because our product is in some ways our megaphone. It's the thing that gets used millions and millions of times a year. And so I do feel like that is probably the highest leverage thing that we can do for, um, for the world in terms of accessibility, in terms of diversity, inclusion, belonging. In particular, and I kind of hinted at this earlier, but I think technology, because it no longer has this barrier of having a human next to you to get access to a home, homeownership, or to get access to a car, or get access to whatever thing that you need to get to the next phase of your financial life as an individual, I think that is innately um, creating accessibility. We already see it today. You know, For example, when we launched our product for the first time several years ago, we were wondering who was using mobile phones to get their mortgage versus who was using computers. And it turns out that it was disproportionately low-income users who were using mobile phones because they had mobile phones. And because they didn't have computers, they didn't, maybe that wasn't their primary use of or um, use of the internet or, or whatever it was, but that was the, that was, so, so that was something that was really telling for us where if we can make this so that everybody can have access to this system, which is intended to be very positive for consumers, have access to that system in their pocket, then eventually more and more people will benefit from it. And so that has been our approach. And that's something that we, we have spent a lot of time on in the last you know eight or nine years. And, Nima, you talked about, um, you know, the kind of qualities that you have that made you uniquely suited to start Blend and to build it. You've also built an amazing team around you. And we've, we've talked about um, Ulysses and Mark. We have a bunch of Breakline alums who are at Blend now, just absolutely killing it, if I do say so myself. And, um, and so it's been a place where it feels like people are empowered to do their best work. It really does seem like that to me as, you know, as a third party observer. Can you talk to us about how your leadership style has evolved, you know, from being a, like founder with you and a couple of people around you to now hundreds and hundreds of people at the company? What, what's, what's changed for you and, and what type of leader are you today? There's certain things that have changed for me um, over the years. Uh, like for example, the way, you know, when I choose to, to plug into something versus when I choose to uh, really give somebody the reins and run with it. Um, I think that's certainly changed. And that's, that was a learned thing over time. Um, but there are certain things that have remained sort of the same for me the entire way. Like I, I, I do really care about the quality of our products. I do really care about how our customers and consumers feel about us and our product and 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 what we what we offer the world. Um, and I do really care about uh, building things that are ten times better than the alternative. So I spend a lot of time on on that today. I think as we've scaled, as we've grown a lot, I had to spend time on culture, um, you know, since the beginning. But as we've grown a lot, I've had to spend a lot of time writing things down around our culture to make sure that the 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 things that are obvious to me because they've, I, they've been part of my life and part of this company's life since day one, 
as we go from 700 to 1,000 to 1,200 to 2,000 or whatever number of people in the company, I don't want that to get lost. And it's, it's harder for me to feel everything that everybody else is feeling um, in the company at this scale. And so this is our, this is my way of saying, Hey, like, let's write down the things that really matter to us. That's been a big shift for me. It's not, not supernatural to me, to be honest. And it's something that, but I, I found it to be very valuable and important to the people around me so that they can, they can help live um, around, you know, the same set of values that, that we, that we have felt since day one, but live it in, in a go forward way. Nimi, you were talking about about culture and sort of building culture and being really thoughtful about that. And you've had to be particularly so in the last year. I think I saw Blend onboarded 200 employees remotely for the first time in, um, in 2020. How do you, how have you adjusted in this environment? You guys had a very cool office in downtown San Francisco <laughs> um, and it's different, right? For you and for everybody else. Any changes you've made related to running a distributed company? Well, I, I think that the one of the things that's really helpful to running a distributed company is um, the tools for distributed work have become so much better than you know maybe they were a year, two years, three years ago. Everyone's investing in those tools, so that's really positive. Um, and also now that people realize it's a longer term thing, they're building better home office setups or work setups um, within their within their home. Uh, so that's that's a positive. I mean, there are things that are are very hard. I'm not, frankly, I have a tough time adjusting because, you know, on the one hand, I really enjoy being in the same room as people, and that gives me energy uh, in talking to people and working with people directly, and it gives a lot of people that I know energy too. Um, and then on on the flip side, you know, being on these kinds of meetings, Zoom meetings or whatnot all day can also become super exhausting. And so it's kind of like I lose some of the positive energy that I would get and I maybe gain some exhaustion that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And so it is something that I feel. And if, I, if I'm feeling it, I'm sure others are feeling it, too. Uh, so I, I think that there's, there's, been a big, there's been a big shift. And I think one thing that we're trying to figure out, maybe being more um, opinionated about, is how do we work in a, in a work from home setting? Like what are the things that we care about? What are the things that we that 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 we, we hold true. Like for example, one thing that I've pushed the team on recently is um, if something doesn't have to be a, a full on meeting, you know, let's just write it down and let's, I mean, th this is obvious, right? Like lots of times people default their, their behavior to do it, set, setting up a meeting or setting up a call, but the, the, the additional overhead of getting on a Zoom call and sitting with somebody for an hour is so much more than doing the work uh, on the side and 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 sharing it and and, and contextualizing it broadly, uh, you know, via in writing or something like that. And so, I've been pushing people hard on how how do we respect each other's time because there is a lot of time that people need to be able to be creative, to recharge, to to work through problems on their own, and it's not going to be solved by getting on another Zoom call. And so, that's something I've been thinking about um, a lot and trying to figure out how do we do that in a way that doesn't disrupt people's flow uh, on a day to day basis. You have multiple blend new hires chiming in on chat saying that they've loved the experience so far. So you seem to be doing pretty well. Um, but one of the things that you just mentioned is the, the, the Zoom-induced exhaustion that I think is really common for, for all of us. And, and I actually don't know exactly why that is, like why these meetings feel, meetings in, through this medium feel tougher than they do in person. But I think that that's pretty common. 
how do you recharge? Like, how do you, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Well, one thing I do is if there's a meeting where I, one, if there's a meeting I don't think should exist, I do tell people, hey, I'm going to go take a walk instead of coming to this meeting or, or whatever. And, um, and I say, here's why. And I give them some context. Um, but then I, any meeting that I'm not the primary driver, but I'm a participant, I, I will take walking. Um, and just to get my head clear, I'll do it, you know, have my earphones in, I'll be listening to the meeting and, and chiming in where I'm, where I'm needed, but I'm not necessarily the driver. And so I don't need to be the one you know, controlling the conversation. And so I, I do, I spend a lot of time walking around, um, getting some fresh air, trying to avoid um, necessarily needing to be on camera for every single meeting. Um, and so that's something that I, I personally do. I'm sure people, not that won't work for everybody, um, but it's something that I really enjoy. What about sleep? Do you get enough sleep? I get a lot. I am like, I went to bed at nine 30 last night. So I really value sleep. Um, and one thing I've had to do is, is, uh, I, I measure my sleep now with this, this whoop band and it's good because it shames me when I don't, don't sleep well. And so, you know, I, I got in bed at nine 30 last night. I could have watched, uh, two hours of, um, shows or something, but instead I went straight to bed and, um, and I woke up really early and I woke up at, you know, pretty early, like 530 and just started, you know, some of the work that I could have done the night before. I, I'll either work in the night or in the morning, but I try to get a good amount of sleep, about eight hours of sleep. And um, I find it so it's personally, it's so important to me. And I've read so many studies around how it's good for long term health that I'm focused on making sure that I get the eight hours, um, you know, regardless of what things are going on around me. Now, there are some nights where it's impossible. If I'm traveling. Um, if there's something going on at work that I need to stay up late for, but I, um, I, I try to get to bed as early as I can every night if I can. Um, if you had watched two hours of shows, what, what would those have been? You know, I don't, I haven't been watching a lot of shows recently cause I've been, sh I've been shamed enough that I go to, instead of watching shows, I go to bed, but I've heard of some good ones. Um, there's a show called Ozark, which is pretty good. I watched the new star Wars um on disney plus i watch a few episodes of that you know sometimes i'll just watch tiktok you know just, just to get some some late night entertainment but it's like short form stuff that's actually the easiest because you can just turn it off at any moment although it's hard in some ways to turn it off um, but yeah I, i'm pretty open i like comedies i like funny stuff but uh you know tiktok is also i think pretty underrated and probably it's going to take over society and i don't know how i feel about that <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask two more questions, Gus, and then I'm going to turn it over to all of you. So go ahead and, and start um, populating the chat with your questions. Nima, I have um, two questions. I'm going to tell you both of them. One, I'd love to talk about a time when you failed or the team failed or there was some really tough obstacle that you had to kind of back up and figure out how to navigate around. And then I also am really interested in what your parents think. I mean, what they think of of you starting blend and blend where it is today and how they express that to you. So your choice, which one to go first with? Sure. So, you know, I guess, um, you know, on the failure, I mean, there are failures almost every day. I'll give you the, the failure of the week right now. We have a customer who was a huge, huge, like raving fan of ours. And I think we just took off our, our eye off the ball a little bit. And I found out, I got a call from them yesterday saying they're feeling you know, not very loved. And I, I feel, again, like I feel that very, you know, very viscerally. And so like when I hear that kind of thing, 
it was obviously a failure. It was some organizational thing that I set up that just didn't work to keep that customer um, continuing to be a raving fan. Um, and that I take that I take that very personally. I, I, I work hard at those things, and so you know I made them a commitment that we would get it back to on track, and we, I would help them, and I would personally be involved. But that's like that happens all the time. We have we have a great customer base. And I really, really care about how they feel about us. And, and maybe like one, we have enough customers now that once a week or once every other week, there's something that comes up that I feel like we could have done better. And, and I spend my time trying to figure out how to fix it from a, uh, from a organizational perspective so that we don't have to deal with that, that, that systemic issue anymore, but there's probably something else that pops up. Um, but that was a bummer. That happened yesterday. I was bummed out about it. But that also is like in the very long game, these things are going to happen. And I have to find ways to push through it and find solutions to it. And that's, that's my, always my approach is like, we, we have, a, we have a substantive company that creates substantive value. And therefore like, we can't let these little things, or sorry, these big things that in the very grand scheme of things over a hundred year time horizon or little things get in the way of us continue to push forward. Cause it is too important that we do what we do. Um, hey Nima, before you go to the second question, why do you feel it so deeply? Cause I do too. And it's different it's just different than any other professional experience I've ever had. What do you think is behind that for you? Behind my behind feeling so deeply about, especially when things go wrong with blend. Like you, you've said that several times in the last half hour that you just feel it on a personal level. Um, I don't know why. I think it's, I don't know. I wish I could tell you, I, I actually don't know why, but I do. And I feel very tied to the long-term impact of what we're going to do. And so I need to make sure that we get there. So I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. Is it because Blend is your baby? You started it. It wouldn't exist without you. No, I would say maybe that's the case. But at Palantir, which was not my baby, I treated it like everything that I did and every customer of ours and every ounce of energy I put into it was as important. I don't think that Palantir got any less energy or focus um, from me than Blend does. And, and, I, and I can't explain it. It's something that I just felt like I needed to make that company successful because it had a really important mission, um, at least at the time. That's changed a lot since then. But, but the customers they were working through, they were working through the financial crisis. And so I took it very personally when things didn't go right. Um, and so I don't think it's, um, I don't think that it's my baby. I think that I would have been just as committed to this company if it were a part of Palantir or a part of some other company, um, than I am now at Blend. Our alum, um, Chris just put in the chat, he said it's the ownership mentality. And do you look for that in other people? really hard to find that level of commitment. We see it all the time in Breakline and we actively look for it, what you're describing. Yeah, and I, I, one thing I wonder, and I don't know the answer, is this, is this a learned thing or is this something that, you know, just, it's like, it's, it's ingrained at a young age or it's maybe people are born with it. I, I don't know where it comes from, but I do look for it in people because finding people who have it, we have people who care about Blend at Blend as much as I do. And, and I, it's hard to find those people. It's, it's super important when we do find them to make sure that they're taken care of and they're given really big responsibilities, but it's not super clear how people get that to me. 
you know what I think we have a mantra that we use at Breakline, which is excellence is transferable. So when we see that someone has been outstanding in something, we expect to see that they're outstanding in something else. It's like you being outstanding in online poker. You were also outstanding at Palantir and now you're outstanding at Blend. Is it, do you think it's something about that? Like just that drive to perform no matter what it is you're doing. You probably were that way at Starbucks too. You know, yeah. And I, I wonder, I, again, like, I don't know why I was though. You know, I, you can't, I can't point to a specific experience that was like, well, that's the thing that made me want to be excellent at the things that I do um, and to really care and have an ownership mentality. And that's the thing that I, it's like, you know, in a perfect world, I could, I could transfer that mindset of excellence um, to everybody around me and also transfer their good things to me. But there's just, I think it's, I think there's like so much that probably nuance and complexity of how it got there. But I do think it, it does tend to work out where if one, you know, if I see somebody, you know, truly build something great in some other area, I do often find it that a tra- that mindset transfers, even if it's a completely new area. Yeah, we see that all the time. Okay, I want to, I want to hear about your parents. Um, who just in that one little video, I, saw, I mean, they're so stinking cute and they were just so sweet with you. Um, but I'd love to hear about, you know, your experience of how they're reacting to, to the choices that you've made over the last decade and to watching Blend grow and solve these very, very tough problems. Um, I think in some ways, they're obviously, I mean, they're super supportive of and excited about the things that we've been able to build here at Blind in the last eight, nine years. But in some ways, because they're they're immigrants who pretty much had to give up everything to come here, they always veered towards the most risk-averse path for me. They're like, don't, don't take, don't take it and and ruin this opportunity that we've given you. And so I remember when I was at Stanford and I, you know, they were very unhappy that I was playing online poker, even though I was very good because they felt it was risky and it had probably some negative uh, long-term effects. And then when I left Stanford, I had a, an, an opportunity to go work in finance or to go to this small company, Palantir, which nobody had ever heard of in 2008. And my parents were extremely against me going to the small company, Palantir. And then of course the financial crisis hit and it was like obvious then that I made the right decision um, and Palantir started doing really well and I was a big part of it. And then when I told them I was leaving Palantir, they were like, you have this great thing going for you. Why would you leave? Like, you're, you know, you're, a, you're, you're, you have a big part of the business there. You're a big shareholder. And I was like, I just don't feel um, fulfilled here anymore. And they were very against me starting my own company um, because they thought it was like, I was throwing away the, the four or five years of hard work that I had done there at Palantir to, to get to the point where now I could be, you know, do, do really impactful things and make a, a safe foundation for my future, for my financial future. Um, and so it, it's, it's funny. It's like, in some ways they're there, I understand where they're coming from. Um, but I have to make my own decisions and, and I have to, I think one thing that I've gotten comfortable with is that even though I, uh, I'm now fortunate to have financial wellness and financial freedom for myself, if I woke up tomorrow and I had to work uh, every day I, and, I, and I had much less than I have now, I would be at peace with that. I would, what I wouldn't be at peace with is not taking the opportunities that are in front of me because I do see a real opportunity to build things that are special and lasting and have a really positive impact on society. 
And I don't want to be thinking about that in 20 or 30 years and wondering, you know, what if I had gone and taken that, that opportunity at Palantir? What if I had gone and started that company? Like, what would my life look like differently? Um, and so I, that's kind of how I, um, how I think about the world. I really don't want to think back and regret not taking some risk um, because I was trying to protect, um, you know, a basic foundation that I had. Um, and I, and I, one, the other thing, one of the other benefits of being a really good online poker player early on was that at age 18, when, you know, you kind of fall into a lot of money and you realize, I realized I was not any happier than I was before I had the money. And so then it sort of frees me to not even have to think about it. And, and I think that was, um, that was an important lesson that, that once I realized it wasn't something that I should be optimizing for, I think there's a certain level, of course, where like, you know, we want to be able to be comfortable and be able to feed our families and be able to have a roof over our heads. But then beyond that, once that comfort is there of, of having a roof over my head and having food on the table, I think that the rest of it, it's just not something to optimize for. I mean, I, I think it's, it's like, there's, there's something special about having a relatively simple existence that's focused on some outcome, which is not a monetary outcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I want to turn it over to um, to the audience now, Nima, and we have a question from um, Chris Gearl, and he's saying, he says he loves the Woot shout out, and I'd never heard of Woot before, so I'm also happy that you shared that with us, but he said, going back to that early hire, he said he would mop the floors, and he said, you don't have the right background, and he said, I'll mop the floors, I'll do anything. He wanted to know how did that situation unfold as the company continued to grow, and do you still continue to evaluate um, potential hires for those same traits? Yeah, in fact, he so we, we didn't end up. I was like, look, I, I, I basically I told him I was like, that's you know I, I appreciate it, but it's just not the right. I think it would be I would be doing you a disservice if I brought you on right now. One year later, we brought him on to be our first business development hire. And now he runs our business development team um, and he's one of the key executives in the company. And so I think, and that's like six years after the fact, like he's, so we did event, the first person I thought of when I was thinking about building a new function, he had no experience in business development, none. Um, and I was just like, you know, I think he's the right guy based on that mindset. And we, you know, we took a, we took a chance on him and it really worked out. And now he's, um, now he's doing, you know, obviously great things within his own realm there. And so, um, but yeah, and I, I really do, I, because most of the things that we'll build in the future will be built in different ways than have things that have been built in the past and they'll look different and they'll feel different and they'll be designed differently and all those things. Because of that, I think overemphasizing on experience um, is, is a huge mistake. And I tell people on the team this all the time where it's like, it's obviously not in every role, but in some, in some cases, um, having that experience can actually hinder growth because it's something that we have to like then work through why it's different here at Blend and kind of unthink all the things that we thought historically and rethink what it could look like going forward. Um, and so I have a huge bias towards hiring people who have the right mindset and potential uh, and, and, and growing with them and having the company grow with them and giving them sort of new context to new situations to go and react to. Uh, and it's, I think it's, it's, it's not easy to, and you, you mentioned Mark Greenberg, Mark had never been in finance at a software company. Um, and yet here he is like, he's, you know, and he's probably the right person for a long time if he wants to be, you know, it's, it's, it's like one of those things where 
and I think, and I don't know this, but I'm sure others looked at him and said, you know, you don't have a software background. We can't hire you as our head of finance um, as a software company, but they were all wrong. You know, it's something that we took a bet on and, we, and it worked out and it doesn't always work out. Like everyone has different skill sets, but finding those people with potential and betting on them sometimes can yield much, much better outsized outcomes. And I think one thing that I, I, I push for, not just in hiring, but in all aspects of our companies, like let's, let's build towards the chance that some outsized outcomes and not bet our entire future on them, but, but um, make sure that we at least have a chance at those outsized outcomes, because I don't want us to be a mediocre company building mediocre products that have mediocre impact. I think that's not very compelling. People can't rally around that. And I can't get excited about that in the same way. I love it so much. And that story reminds me of Andy Hoffman, who's one of our alums at Blend, who was a um, helicopter pilot in the Navy, and he's now a customer success manager. That was his first post-military role. And he had all of the, you know, the strengths that you were looking for and not the experience, you know, the direct conventional experience. And he and our other alums are absolutely killing it there. Um, so Chris Evanson, another Chris, he has a question and he's saying, how does your poker expertise inform the levels of risk you take as an entrepreneur? Well, one thing that's nice about poker is that, you know, while the game is extremely unpredictable, the risk is fairly well understood. And so there were like basic um, ranges of how much, like what stakes you could play. Um, you could play a thousand dollar buy-in game once you had $50,000 in your bank account. You could play a $5,000 buy-in game once you had you know, 250,000. And there was like, well, and people could say, okay, well, I'm going to take a bet and play when I have 100,000 instead of 250,000. And they could choose to take more risk um, rather than less, but it was well understood. In startups, risk is not super well understood because most of the future outcomes are totally unknown. And the variance around the decisions we make are totally unknown. And so it's not easy to say that some, some decision is a huge risk or not a huge risk. So I think there are certain aspects, but now the way I would simplify it is there are certain things that we take no risk around. Um, and those are, there are certain aspects of our product that are, you know, we have a lot of uh, private information. And so the security of our product, we take no risk around. We're working in reg really regulated industries. So we take no risk around any sort of regulatory or compliance issues that could come up. Um, we, we need to have capital to survive as a company. So we take no capital risk. We make sure that we'll always have enough uh, money in the bank account to, to last for years and years beyond any sort of negative event that might happen in the markets more broadly. And so we take no capital risk um, as a company. I think, and then I think other than those things, we take on a lot of risk because, you know, with those three things in mind, it becomes really easy to undo any other mistakes we make. And every other mistake we make, and not just to undo it, I shouldn't say like make it go away, but like if we make a mistake, we can just move on to the next thing. And so I'm willing to take a lot of risk on all those areas that are not in those major areas that I just mentioned, because I know that we will always have the safety net of those first three things to say, we'll, we will continue to be around as a company and we'll continue to focus on our customers if we if this one bet doesn't work out. Um, but without taking those those bets, we end up in a situation where like we again go back to being a mediocre company doing mediocre things that anybody else would do. And so we have to take those bets. Um, one of the things you talked about with your poker career was that process that you went through of not just playing your hands, but then going back and watching them again to see what you could have done differently. And it sounds really similar to me to what our veterans call the after action report, where they have a mission and then they get together and talk about what could have gone differently or better. 
do you all still do that at blend yeah we do and i think that the, the risky thing with that is just that sometimes people tend to do that with only things that go wrong meaning if it was a bad outcome then we'll do this after action report or we call it something else but it's the same concept um i think one of the things that poker taught me is i reviewed every hand whether i won the hand or lost the hand because whether i win or lose the hand there's so much luck involved in that that i can't look at the outcome of the hand i have to look at my actions along the way and so we do i try to make us do the same thing at blend where even if something goes well it doesn't mean we couldn't have done something better along the way that we can learn from and make part of our common practice going forward and the same thing there there are times when things have gone poorly and we do the after action report and it turns out that we just you know we just got unlucky you know something random happened that 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 you know got in the way of our success and that happens like there are times when that happens and and i think it's not i think being results oriented is one of the it's the worst trait in poker players if they're winning in a short term you know in like a few a few games they think they're really really good or if they're losing a few games they think they're really really bad and usually the the variance in or the, the luck in the short term is too is too great to overcome in those things and so so i think the most important thing in the after action reports is to do them with every major mission or every major project or every major thing so that regardless of win or, win or lose we can always get better um, Crystal Myung, she has a question for you, Nima, that is related to this. She says, as blend grows and scales, can you talk about how you continue to drive accountability and maintain clarity for that goal across the entire organization, even as you all scale? Well, I mean, the way I think about accountability is just like I said um, a moment ago, it's not necessarily on the specific results or the specific goal, but around the actions that, that, that people take. Um, if people are doing the right things with the right thought process and the right mindset, then I can't fault them. If I would do the same thing in their shoes most of the time, I can't fault them. I think when I get, when I hold people accountable is when they're not, when they're, they're either doing things without the same sense of urgency that, that, you know, we need as a company to make our customers successful or where they're doing things that aren't, aren't putting our customers and consumers first, that are putting some other stakeholder first, like our internal team members or investors or something that's just much less important than consumers. And so I think those are the kinds of things that, that I look at is, is like, what's, are they doing things in the right mindset with the right um, thought process? And if they are, then I'd, I think it's totally fine for them to make mistakes or not meet, meet some numerical that we invented anyways. I mean, one of the, one of the common mis misconceptions of startups is like this concept of OKRs where you have this objective and you set an objective that you completely made up and it's like some number. It's like, we want to grow our user base by 20%. Well, where did we get that number from? We made it up. Our goal should be to grow the user base as much as possible. And, and so 20% um, could be way too high because maybe it's impossible because we already have so many of the users on the platform already, or it could be way too low. Um, and it, we could have just done a better job and, and like, or we can just, and our goal should be to grow that as much as possible. And so I try not to focus on specific numbers that I expect people to hit uh, as much as the actions that they're taking and the, the thought process and mindset behind those actions, because that's the thing that one, that, that, that scales infinitely. If people have a common thought process or common um, mindset, I should say, and then have really solid thought processes um, and problem solving processes, that works through any problem that we might face in the organization. That's really interesting to me because you've also said that one of the reasons why you, you work really hard to recruit a very diverse team is that if you have 
like people with the same um, problem solving sort of approach and aperture all sitting around the table, all looking at a problem in exactly the same way with the same sort of concept of how to solve it, you just get a partial solution. How do you, like, while you're trying to drive that alignment, how do you also stay away from groupthink? Well, I think the best way to, to, to stay away from groupthink is to encourage people to share uh, views that disagree with the group. I, it seems obvious, but it's like, I think in so many places, and including at Blend, sometimes we find ourselves guilty of like having such strong opinions that somebody's afraid to share their opinion, which might be a different one around some solution to some problem. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, that can be a real problem. Like I want, I want, and I sometimes find myself having to pull it out of people and saying, you know, Hey, I like somebody here has to disagree. Like, please speak up. We need to figure out what it is. And I think it comes with first and foremost, finding people from different backgrounds who have different perspectives on things. Um, you know, I mentioned Mark earlier, he and I have a very different perspective on the world. And so I find myself often, um, pulling the conflict out of him. Like I want to hear his, his negative perspective on things that I think, or his positive perspective on things that I think um, negatively of, because I want to understand the other side of the table better. Um, and, and I think it's tough, right? Like, you know, it's, I'm, I'm a pretty strong voice. And so I have to be very careful to continue to pull that out of people, because I think it can be overwhelming at times for people to, to, to speak up against um, you know, a loud voice. And so I have to be really careful about that. And then we also have to continue, like I said, like you said, to bring people in from varying perspectives because they will have differing um, perspectives on how to solve these problems. And, and having that around the table can often lead to a better or more, more nuanced solution that can solve the problem in a way that maybe any individual person couldn't have thought of. Um, Nima, I want to just take one more question along these lines. And um, based on what you just said, Ulysses also just chatted in something about conflict, which dovetails with something he says all the time as well, which is conflict is not inherently bad. It's actually sometimes where we get our best learning from. But with you as a CEO, I was a chief of staff to a CEO at one point, and he wanted to do this, but had less self-awareness about how powerful his voice was. You know, when he came into the room and made a statement, then other people were freaked out about <laughs> you know, disagreeing with whatever that um, that statement was because it felt definitive since it came from him. How do you actually pull other folks into the conversation and, and empower them to, to have an equal voice in that conversation? I, I mean, I think this is an area where I'm pretty weak, to be honest. Like I'm working on it, um, but I've been now very actively like polling people for disagreement and making sure that if they do disagree, that I like I want the conflict because I want us to get the best outcome. And without getting the conflict on the table, I think two bad things happen. One, we don't get the best outcome. And two, even the outcome that I had proposed or someone else had proposed in a loud voice, um, then there's people behind the scenes who are feeling like they were they were disenfranchised and maybe saying negative things about the path we're taking which is all, it's even worse. And so not only are we going down the wrong path or maybe a slightly off path, but we are also being pulled in other directions by people who disagreed and weren't able to be heard. And so I find myself, I'm not as good as this as I want to be, but I find myself now trying to pull it out of people and I'm continuing to get better at this because I think it's important that this is a skill that lives in the organization more broadly. 
All right, Nima, what a treat to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for the time. We absolutely love partnering with you and the whole team at Blend. Really appreciate that you're willing to build us into your calendar today. Yeah, thanks for having me. What an awesome discussion. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you've heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us continue to share this great content. Uh, and most importantly, we just love to hear what you what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there. So please join us again next Tuesday here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you guys next week.